Welcome to the Mornings with Sue and Andy podcast for Tuesday, October 24th. We begin with our weekly conversation with Mercedes Stevenson, Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and host of The West Block. Mercedes brings us details of her conversation with Frank Lowenstein, former U.S. Special Envoy for Israeli-Palestinian negotiations, on what the White House is doing to contain the conflict in Gaza from spreading and what it could take to defuse the situation. Next, we've seen civilian casualties on both sides of the Israel-Hamas conflict, but are war crimes being committed? We discuss the process to investigate and prosecute potential war crimes with Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia. University. And finally, Paris, the city known for its style, cuisine, love, and now a bed bug infestation. We get some pro tips on how to avoid these unwanted travel companions with the travel lady, Leslie Cater. 605 now and U.S. hostages, some have been released by the terrorist group Hamas after the October 7th attack on Israel, but more than 200 hostages remain captive. What will it take to secure their release and potentially bring peace to the Middle East? That was the focus of this week's West Block host and Ottawa Bureau Chief for Global Television, Mercedes Stevenson, joins us to talk all about it. Hi, Mercedes. Thanks for being back with us. Hey, thanks for having me. We know a couple more hostages, older women, were just released. And this past weekend, you spoke to former FBI negotiator Phil Andrew about the behind-the-scenes race to get these hostages released and to liberate them before a ground offensive takes place by Israel. What did he have to say? An FBI negotiator, he would certainly have some really fascinating insider information. Yeah, well, he really said that um, the trick when you when you have the situation, even though it's over 200 hostages, is to negotiate each case individually. So you've got a lot of negotiators working on this, and then to really try to humanize each of these individuals to the hostage takers, so that it's it's not you know you're seeing them as an Israeli, you're seeing them as however they have imagined them in their mind. You're seeing them as a grandmother, or a mother, or a father, or a son, or a daughter, or somebody's wife, or husband, or, or the children who are there, to really try to appeal to that. And he said sometimes when hostage takers are spending long amounts of time around the hostages, um, in the same way that the hostage can get Stockholm syndrome and start to identify with their hostage taker, you sometimes can reach the hostage taker too because they're seeing the humanity of that individual, that they are a person and, and they're not just a number or someone to be taken like, uh, you know, they can be held ransom as if they're a prize. This is a human being. Um, so he said that really will be the goal of the hostage negotiators in terms of dealing very specifically uh, with those who have the hostages. That's not the big kind of government to Hamas or state uh, like Egypt or Qatar to Hamas negotiations that are happening, but they will be trying to do that one-on-one, getting Hamas to see um, that these are human beings, and you saw the release of um, the, the teenage girl and her mother, and now two elderly women, so you can kind of see that strategy at work with who is starting to be released, uh, and of course, the hope being that, that all over 200 would be released in the end. Okay, so this is obviously we have former FBI negotiator Phil Andrew that you were speaking with. Did he give any indication at what point do you leave the negotiation behind and try to be more proactive as far as maybe within that ground assault, freeing the hostages and some of the issues and how delicate a situation like that would look? Yeah, I mean, he didn't 
go as much into that because for a guy like Phil Andrew, it's it's all about negotiation, right? That's his his sole focus is is trying to get the hostages out. But we did speak to another individual uh, who deals more with that, um, and and he's a former Israeli Palestinian uh, special envoy for for Israeli uh, Palestinian negotiations in the Middle East uh, for the Obama administration, and he was saying, you know, like this is a complicated situation, and that he really believed that the White House, and this was before it came out kind of publicly. It happened later in the day after we spoke to him. But he believed the White House was putting some pressure on the Israeli government to say, just give it a little more time to try to get the hostages out. Um, Because, of course, there is a risk if you go in that they get killed. Um, The idea that you kind of just go in and grab them, this is a very sophisticated you know, operation they're dealing with with Hamas. The woman who was released today and was speaking to the media talked about being held in this like spider web network of tunnels underground that are quite sophisticated. So if you're going to go in there and try to get 200 hostages out, the chance that you lose a lot of operators, but even more than that, a lot of hostages um, is very high. And I remember when we went through our training as journalists, when I went through, it was the height of ISIS. And they were talking about being kidnapped, and they said, you know, everyone thinks you want to be rescued. It's actually the most dangerous time for a hostage. It's when you're the most likely to either be accidentally killed by the people who are rescuing you or killed by the hostage takers as those people move in. Um, So that would be highly dangerous for the hostages if they had to do that. They could be being kept in multiple locations, not all together. Um, And so the, the thinking that some are saying was happening inside the Israeli government is maybe you treat them as lost and go in anyhow because you're you're not getting them back. Hamas is saying we'll turn them over, but only if there's a ceasefire. Obviously, the Israelis are, are not amenable to that at this point. So now the Americans are kind of um, not in the middle, but trying to influence the Israelis to wait a little bit longer before they go in to see how many hostages can be released. And sort of the prevailing theory right now around uh, American national security circles is, is that's what the delay is in the Israeli ground offensive mm. that a lot of folks were expecting like 10 days ago. Okay, that makes sense because I think everybody's right. We've just been waiting and watching because Israel said they were going to go in. So does it seem then that the U.S. does hold some sway when it comes to what Israel does? Because they must not have much to do with uh, Hamas being a terrorist organization, or do they have some sway with that group too? The Americans don't necessarily have a lot of sway with Hamas, but they'll be talking to Qatar um, and to Egypt and to other countries that, that do have sway with Hamas and saying, you know, like you need to you need to help out here. This could become a regional war that could plunge you and other countries in the region into a very protracted, very violent conflict that could spread around the world. Um, so I think there's a lot of concern in, in not just Western and American circles, but also uh, in, in circles in the governments in the Middle East about what a war like this could could look like. And remember the Arab Spring. Some of these governments are very worried about their own populations rising up against them if there were to be a situation that was highly destabilizing. Um, the Americans have this interesting thing um, that our American guest was talking to us about where uh, it, it, with the Israelis, it's kind of like the more supportive you are in public, the harsher you can be in private. Um, and Frank Lowenstein, who obviously is still quite connected to the White House we were talking to as the former negotiator, said that, you know, publicly Joe Biden has come out with this this incredibly strident support that a lot of people weren't expecting from him. Uh, you know, his past foreign policy kind of hadn't indicated that, that he would be that strong of a uh, supporter of Israel. He went there, which basically means the Americans kind of now own this conflict uh, in, a, in a public perception sense. And so that meant that um, he offered tremendous support to the Israelis, but that kind of earns him the private ability to say, hey, slow down. 
Uh, we want to try to do everything we can to get the hostages out. Think about the wider consequences here. So I thought that was an interesting dynamic that he was talking about. Of the, the more publicly supportive are, the more privately you can you can try to you know get them to listen to you. And it seems like so far, whether it's that they're listening to the Americans or they have concerns as well, by the way, about their own domestic population and their reaction if those hostages get killed uh, in Israeli strikes. Uh, something has held them back beyond when we initially thought that they were going to go in. And, and really only the Israelis know what the full calculus is on that. But I think that um, those are certainly some of the factors that are that are weighing in on it. All right, Mercedes, switching gears and uh, was reading on globalnews.ca. And we've heard for, for it seems like a few months now that the federal liberals are having some, some traction issues. And now Trudeau uh, government's own polling program is saying it's in trouble. Can you tell us about this? Yeah, so David Aiken, um, who is our senior political correspondent, had this story. You can use ATIP, which is access to information, which allows you to theoretically get government documents. And, and side note slash rant here, uh, that system is incredibly broken, and we can very rarely get any transparency on things on it. But one of the few things we can get is access to polls that the government commissions. Um, and it was interesting because, you know, Twitter is, is always a, a bit of an interesting place for partisans, but you had a lot of Trudeau supporters angry about this story saying, you know, well, who paid for this polling? It's biased. Well, it's, it's actually the government who, themselves yeah. uh, who have paid for this polling because they need to know how they're doing. Uh, and what it pretty clearly showed is, is what we were seeing in the public polls, that the government uh, has been losing support, um, and that's obviously very concerning for them. Now, sort of the, the end of the polling that we saw there was July, because obviously we have to put in and then wait to get that information back, and by the time we get it back, it's months later. We don't know what their internal polls are showing right now in October, uh, but there was a pretty clear trend there that was also being reflected um, in the public polling, which made uh, you know our theories about why we thought the cabinet shuffle might be happening uh, seem to certainly be supported by their own internal polling. Of, of trying to change the channel, trying to get a different story out there, trying to get ministers who were being um, highly recognizable and highly criticized out of the spotlight. Do you hear that sound, Mercedes? That's the sound of cheering coming from the province of Alberta, I think, when you report <laughs> stats like that. Thank you so much. Really always appreciate your time. Thanks for breaking things down with us. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Mercedes Stevenson is the Global News Ottawa Bureau Chief and, of course, the host of The West Block. 7.05 on your Tuesday morning. The war between Israel and Hamas has taken the lives of thousands on both sides of the conflict. But are war crimes being committed and how will these potential crimes be investigated? Joining us to discuss is Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. Good morning to you, Kyle. Thank you for having me on. Do we know, like we know obviously that civilians have been caught in the crossfire on both sides of this war, but do we know if there's evidence that war crimes are being committed by either Israel or Hamas? Well, I, th I think the answer is yes, and particularly if you look at the videos that have been circulated, uh, the, the GoPro head cams that Hamas uh, took when they attacked Israel that started this new round of the conflict, you see that there's just not just war crimes, but I say crimes against humanity committed against civilians, uh, against children against babies, taking civilians as, as prisoners of war, uh, kidnapping them. That is all not allowed according to international humanitarian law and according to the Rome Statute that laid the foundation of international criminal court. So we do know that for a fact, that uh, Hamas um, is guilty uh, of war crimes and there's more and more people now trying to see what Israel is doing and trying to 
uh, ensure that it uses proportionality as it tries to fight Hamas. Uh, but, but Kyle, I mean, who and how would you hold a terrorist group like Hamas accountable? Well, I think it's pretty simple. Um, Hamas, the leader of Hamas is sitting in Qatar. Um, Qatar, the government of Qatar has given him uh, uh, and the leadership um, a place to work and plan to commit atrocities. So there needs to be a lot of pressure put on Qatar by Western countries and by the International Criminal Court and the International Court of Justice. So, so that is one avenue uh, that we could put pressure. And we're starting to see NGOs around the world starting to say Qatar has a role here. Um, and we should start boycotting Qatari companies, including hotels they own in the West, in order to make them hand over um, uh, the masterminds of the initial butchering of civilians who have come out and publicly and said they did it. And they, they, they admitted that they've targeted civilians, and they also admitted they've been working with Iran to do it. So, so I think there's enough public information to definitely try to go after these non-state actors. I want to back it up, something you said a, a minute and a half ago there, Kyle, which was, you know, not only war crimes, but also potentially crimes against humanity being committed. What is the difference between the two? Well, mass atrocity crimes consist of four specific crimes. The crime of genocide, uh, crimes against humanity, ethnic cleansing, and war crimes. And when you think about war crimes, it could be intentionally targeting civilians. Uh, it could be um, shooting uh, another soldier once the soldier puts down his weapons. But what we saw that Hamas, they purposely targeted civilians. And, and, and uh, yesterday, videos were released of some of their crimes, and they are just so despicable, so inhumane. That they, they mirror what ISIS did in the Syrian and Iraq in the Syrian war and against the Yazidi community. So, so I, I think they're more than that. I think what we saw, um, and some legal scholars are saying that Israel's response is to stop an ongoing genocide by Hamas. And if you look at Hamas's, their charter, they basically, um, their, their charter is, is, is the destruction of the Jewish people in Israel. It, it's not we want a, a two-state solution. It is the ultimate defeat and destruction. So, so that's, that's, in a way, the extremist nature of that movement mm -hmm. and and it's extremely difficult challenge for israel it's a difficult challenge for the world how do you deal with this today france the french government said they should uh, activate the coalition that was used to fight isis to go after hamas i'm mm -hmm. um, not sure how realistic that is but but it's it's definitely a major major problem so when you talk about something like this u.n security council for, for example is there anything that that they can do in terms of of what's ha what Hamas, I mean, the atrocities that Hamas is committing? Well, yes, the International Security Council can uh, condemn uh, Hamas. They can uh, condemn Qatar. Um, they can uh, suggest that there be an, um, an investigation by the International Criminal Court against Hamas. Um, and they also must also um, stand up and demand that more is done to protect civilians in Gaza, um, as well as humanitarian aid is let in and and that um, anything Israel does, does do its minimum not to target civilians. And, and so that's something that I, I emphasize, that there needs to be a focus on protecting civilians. Um, Hamas um, committed these crimes, they're taking people hostage, they're not releasing them. Um, and so that's where we are, but it's an extremely dangerous situation. Where are we now? When we throw the term out there, Kyle, international criminal law, how uh, you, how robust is it in its potential and in its impact on deterring war crimes? Has it gained strength over the years, or is it to remain fairly steady as far as, I guess you'd say, the oomph it has when it comes to deterring such crimes? 
Um, I would say that we did make progress. We created a national criminal court. Um, there have been cases where it was or, or international law was used to prosecute uh, the Serbian leaders for, for crimes against humanity uh, in the Balkans in the 90s. But I would say in the past couple of years, it's weakened. Um, we've seen the Russian invasion of Ukraine um, basically blocking the U.S. Security Council from investigating also atrocity crimes there, which includes the, um, uh, you know, the, the forceful transfer of children from Ukraine to Russia. So I would say it's weakening. I, I, we're seeing a, a rise of authoritarian governments um, that are um, increasingly committing uh, atrocity crimes and um, seem to be doing everything possible to try to uh, weaken international law or at least discredit it. The world continues to watch. Kyle, thank you so much for your perspective this morning and breaking it down. Appreciate your time. Thank you for having me on. Thanks. Kyle Matthews, Executive Director of the Montreal Institute for Genocide and Human Rights Studies at Concordia University. Seven forty-nine right now. Speaking of travel, but of a different variety, it's time to check in with our friend Leslie Cater, the travel lady. Hi, Leslie. Hi, Sue. Good morning. Oh, bed bugs are what we're talking about this morning, and I've had the willies ever since you told us that's what you wanted to chat about. But they've certainly been making international headlines, and that yeah. has travelers on edge, doesn't mm-hmm. it? Well, it does. I mean, you hear bed bugs. Oh, nobody likes that. And of course, there was this thing going around Paris as under an infestation of bed bugs. I I have friends who live in Paris and I said, you know, are you guys having this problem? And they said, no. So, but I guess once bed bugs are discovered in some hotels, they have to do something about it because people freak out. Mm -hmm. And Paris is one of the most visited cities in the world. So there's a lot of to and fro going on there. Yeah, it's just, it's, it's crazy in that the impact that a bed bug can have, we hear how grotesque literally it it scares the heck out of me Uh, but as far as the impact it can have for example on an industry such as travel or to these hospitality owners of beds and breakfasts and hotels well exactly and just looking at this you know technology is amazing so there is now technology uh, being installed in the legs of beds in major hotel brands where it's uh, it has a way of detecting if there is a bed bug, of isolating it, and then not only that, it sends a message to the head office to say, hey, this hotel, this location, we found a bed bug. You need to do something about that. Seriously? Yes. yes. So the bed bugs, um, they travel out of the carpet or wherever and up the legs and into the mattress? Is that how it works? Uh, no, it, they travel out of wherever they're hiding, usually around the headboard or at the end of the mattress, into a cavity in the leg where they are sending out some kind of a, um, I don't know if it's a smell or or a, a vibration, but it attracts these bed bugs into this situation and no insecticide is used because huh. that's always the big thing. You don't want to be in an environment where mm-hmm. there's insecticide. Uh. So it effectively neutralizes the bed bugs, collects them all in one place and then sends out a message to head office. Wow. So I think that's pretty amazing. Fascinating. Uh, certainly, you know, from my point of view, look, um, I've traveled to so many countries all over the world and I can't say I have ever had this problem. Mm. So maybe I've just been lucky, but generally I'll stick with the known brands. 
So maybe that's a reason mm-hmm. why. It's, uh, but it's an interesting dilemma because once you find that... But a few tips. If you're in a place where you think, oh, I'm not so sure about this, don't put your suitcase on the bed to unpack. That's what most of us do, mm-hmm. right? I know <sighs> I do. So they give you those little luggage trays there in your room. Unpack on there. Uh, keep all your dirty laundry in a laundry bag that you can tie up and close because bed bugs love smelly stuff. <laughs> so keep those separate from everywhere else. And But you know something, if you're worried about this kind of thing as well, um, stick with the major chains. Yeah. They are the ones who are really working on this with this technology and they have a name mm. to uphold. It's I'm not running down Airbnbs or bed and breakfast or anything, but sometimes they just don't have that yeah. extra support. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, I'm, now I'm itching from head to toe. Thanks for that, Leslie. <laughs> but, uh, some great tips. Uh, thank you so much for the heads up. Okay. Have a good day, guys. Thank you. It's, no scratching. <laughs> absolutely. It's Leslie Cater, known as The Travel Lady. You can find out more about what she does online at thetravellady.ca.